morning, everyone. My name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at the river. I want to welcome you all to snowy Silicon Valley. Hope you're enjoying, you know, snowshoeing, skiing, ice fishing, all the things that we typically do in our native in environment. As Ihoma mentioned, today is the first Sunday of the season that the church calls Lent. Now, our particular faith community is sort of like a very diverse place. So we have people that love Lent and it's really deep and meaningful, and we have other people that have been here for many years but who feel like, what's that thing again? <laughs> you know? So if you will bear me um, the corniness of a moment of church humor, I came across a comic that's instructive to us. Uh, James gives it up for Lent. You know, woohoo, Lent. Go, go, Lent. So, for those of you who are like still kind of tuning in to what's going on, James gives it up for Lent because the traditional spiritual practice of the church in Lent or of spiritual pilgrims of any kind is the uh, favored spiritual practice of fasting. Fasting refers to abstaining, going without food or some subset of food like meat or alcohol or dessert, just enjoyable things, you know? So uh, as far back as like the third century, like in the 200s, uh, followers of Jesus, the final week uh, leading up to Easter, they would eat nothing but bread and water starting seven days before Easter. And then on Good Friday, the observance of the uh, sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, from then on through Easter, they would uh, eat nothing. They would just drink water. So we're not doing all that. <laughs> but the invitation for God's people is to fast as some sort of expression of spiritual desire. And uh, James says, woohoo, because fasting is so enjoyable for the average soul. Clearly, <laughs> very tongue in cheek. Uh, almost nobody enjoys fasting. There, there was once here where I said, nobody enjoys fasting. And there was one guy at the river who said, I actually rather enjoy it. And I thought, okay, nobody but you. You know, <laughs> fasting uh, requires from all of us, wherever we might be coming from on the spiritual journey, it requires a sort of internal strength to uh, say no, to tame our most visceral inner desires. Anyone ever been hangry? You know, it's like, hey, we do unnice things to people when we're hangry. Uh, to intentionally let ourselves be hangry. Well, that's a, that's a choice that one would make. And there's not that much cultural support for that. There's all sort of cultural support for buying gifts for your friends and getting an advent calendar in December and having a different kind of cheese or wine or chocolate. There's not that many Lenten calendars that just open up the little thing and there's nothing in there. <laughs> so if you, if you or if we were going to be a community of people who fasted, without generating a heart of resentment for that fasting, uh, we would have to have a reason for that, some positive picture 
of something that might happen for us. Why do Christians fast? To put it in one word, I think a word would be clarity. We fast because the heart and the mind affected by what Christians call sin is kind of like we get clouded, and there is a kind of clarity that comes in the simplification of a life of fasting if we apply ourselves to that journey of fasting in a mindful kind of way. And followers of Jesus have thought about this clarity in a couple of different ways. One would be kind of a horizontal clarity about the real state of our relational lives. How really are our relationships going? Our relationships in our households, our relationships with friends, our relationships in the body of Christ. And traditionally, Lent and fasting has been a time of reflecting on are there relationships that are askew or out of place or where there's tension that I'm not paying attention to. I'm, I'm hiding from that. And it's so common in our culture today and in uh, the expression of our humanity where there is tension, if we're not turning away from it, uh, we just blame the other person. It's like, man, that person's irritating. I don't know why they're so irritating. They just have issues. You know, and they might have issues. Most people do. But the clarity of fasting brings into possibility that our hearts might be playing some role in the tension of relationships that should matter to us that aren't mattering so much. And those could be relationships with people that are directly around us. Or maybe it's a kind of relationship with people on the other side of the world. We pay attention to those kinds of relationships too. We've talked uh, in this first portion of Lent about fasting from the richness of food. So simple eating defined as like maybe not eating meat for these first two weeks of Lent, or maybe not drinking alcohol, or maybe not eating dessert. Those would all be ways of paying attention to our relationships with the world around us, potentially. Maybe our not eating meat would be an act of solidarity with people who don't live in as much privilege as we do, and thinking about what our abundance could be accomplishing in the world, things like that. Or maybe if we're fasting from alcohol, you could be thinking about your potential addiction to alcohol, but you could also be identifying with the way in which tens of thousands of especially women are abused in homes all across the United States largely affected or induced by alcoholism. We could pay attention to our participation in that. In a world marked by sin, we get unclear about the ways in which we participate in a world of sin. Things become unclear to us. We're like people on a long driving journey in which, like, at the beginning, the windshield is clear, but after a while, bugs are splattering. And for a while, that's irritating. But if you ran out of windshield wiper fluid, it would become a dangerous thing. As Jesus neared the end of his earthly life, he made it clear to his disciples 
that our lack of ability to see what's going on in the world around us, our lack of ability to see the effect of sin in our own hearts, that can be absolutely deadly to the human person. Listen to these words in John chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says to his disciples, that's the them in this verse, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. You're bound to run into things, to crash. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Let me make a couple of comments about these particular verses since they sort of frame our Lenten series, and then we'll get on to the narrative portion of this text. First of all, Jesus says that you're only going to have the light for a little bit longer. Jesus here is speaking not about the sunlight, but he's speaking about the light of his presence. He's called himself the light of the world. And if you're a reader of the New Testament, we see Jesus over and over again telling his most faithful students that I am not going to be with you. I am going to be rejected. I am going to suffer. I am going to die. You are going to be without me in this world. And over and over again, we see the disciples unable to receive this teaching. They're revealing this sense that the human person resists the suffering and dying ministry of Jesus in the world. One of the things that we get clear about as we fast during Lent is the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus. And the writer of the Gospel of John, being a guy named John, uh, he helps us get clear that we need to slow down and pay attention to this part of Jesus' vocation. If you had a paper Bible, if you're not reading the Bible on your phone and you actually, you know, I don't know, grew up in the 80s or something like that, and you have a thing called the Bible, you would see that this story, which begins the last week of Jesus' life, is about halfway through the gospel story. John is saying, don't speed through this part. Slow down through this part. Whatever it is you love and appreciate about Jesus, you really don't understand what he came to accomplish until you've reckoned with the necessity of his suffering and his death. So that's one of the things we do during Lent. We fast and we tune in to the suffering, this part of Jesus' narrative. It says, secondly, that darkness may overtake us. It's one of the reasons why we so need clarity is that there is a darkness in the world that overtakes the human person. Here again, he's not just talking about it getting late at night and the sun's going down and you should be careful about riding a bike and wearing a light and all these sorts of things. He's talking about a kind of spiritual darkness that can eclipse the human heart and the human mind. That word overtakes is sort of an interesting word. 
In Mark chapter 9, there's a story told in which there is an evil spirit, a demon that takes possession of a young boy and it throws him to the ground and causes him to grind his teeth and he gets as rigid as a board. It's possessed his life. It squeezes the humanity out of him. And the word that Mark uses to talk about that young man is that he is seized, he's overtaken by darkness. Your life and my life, too, is vulnerable to darkness. One of the things that we are looking for as we fast during Lent is increased clarity about the effect of the darkness in the world upon us, upon our hearts, and upon our minds. Now, these days, we don't have trouble seeing darkness in the world in those people called them, right? It's like, man, it's just so clear how darkness and demons have infiltrated them. It's so obvious. But we oftentimes are blind to the ways in which darkness has its hold on us. And the gospel writer tells us that is no good for us whatsoever, to the extent that we only see darkness in the other and not in us, we will be prone to having our perspectives and our values and our identity profoundly distorted by the voices of darkness. And then finally, in the midst of that intense word, there is a positive word that we might become children of light, that if we believe in the light while we have the light, if we walk with Jesus, if we follow him closely and don't abandon him through the season of his suffering and death, we might become people in whose hearts live his light. We might become sources of light in the world around us. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read the gospel stories, we find that it's a rigorous journey. It's a journey marked by failure by every single disciple, and we can look at those stories of failure because those stories of failure are exceeded by the grace, kindness, and mercy of Christ. So, darkness and light. It's possible to be seized by light, but it's possible for a human person to live as a child of light. These are big concepts, poetic in the Gospel of John. They're kind of at 20,000 feet. What do those big concepts mean in a human person? What do they look like in the context and concreteness of a life story? Well, that we see, this contrast, at the beginning of John chapter 12. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, as she poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I'll pause here and just say, what an unusual dinner party. Jesus sitting at table with a friend who had seen death, this man Lazarus, 
whom Jesus has raised from the dead. I wonder if you could stir your imagination and consider what the feeling might have been in that dinner space. The extraordinary gratitude in the heart of Lazarus for all that had been given him. And Mary comes and pours a pint of perfume on Jesus' feet. What in the world is she doing? How childlike could we be? I mean, that's something a child would do, right? It's like dumping perfume on someone. Everybody knows it's just like just a squirt, just an ounce, just a couple of drops. In the ancient world, it would have been just a few drops on the head and the hair. That would have been pleasant. A pint, it's, a, it's so excessive, it's, it's, so, it's so foolish. But it's not just the perfume. She also wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, which presumably means that she's down on her hands and knees at the feet of Jesus. We know that woman putting her hair down in public in the ancient Middle East and even in parts of the contemporary Middle East. Well, that's a scandal. This is an expression of intimacy. She has literally let her hair down in a way that's incredibly uncomfortable for the other people in the room. In verse 4, it says that one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was this perfume sold and the money not given to the poor? This is worth a year's wages. That's a lot of money. He's totally wasted on this cause. Verse 6, this is John interjecting here, the writer of this gospel story. He said, he did not say this, this Judas. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. John totally throwing his fellow disciple under the bus. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John says that Judas didn't care. Judas carrying on his air of self-righteousness. He didn't really care about the poor. He cared about money. He might as well have been just saying, Judas is a rat. (laughs) You know, Judas is a Weasley character. Judas is remembered even outside the church uh, in derision, and rightly so. In all my years of working here at the river, we've never had a child in our children's ministry named Judas. <laughs> Judas Bauer. Yeah, did you guys consider Did you consider that? That's not just a church thing, right? Do you know people who don't go to church named Judas? No one wants to be known as a Judas. He is other. He is the kind of person that no one would ever want to become like. But I want to warn us against othering Judas too quickly. I mean, it is true that none of us wants to be like Judas. And if you're thinking about having children, I don't recommend you bump up that name on your list. That would be a very hard thing for your child to bear. But if we can't imagine at all the possibility that we are anything like Judas, I think there's an increasing possibility that we might fall just like Judas. So let me do the unthinkable and try to rehabilitate his uh, reputation just a little bit, not, not a whole lot, but just a little bit, enough for us to identify. I think there's a good case that Judas 
weakness was largely hidden. This wasn't like an obvious thing. Otherwise, no one would have let him be treasurer. I think there's a good chance that the weakness in Judas' character might have been seen as a small failure of character, maybe irritating a little bit, but not disqualifying. It was something that was underneath the surface, covered over by other compensating factors, other positive qualities that apparently qualified him to be a disciple, to pray for people and to bless them and to cast out demons and to serve the poor. Are our small weaknesses really all that important? Or couldn't we just say, hey, nobody's perfect? One of the things that I think we see in Judas' life is that small weaknesses become matters of great concern when they're under intense pressure. Small weaknesses of character that maybe most people don't see become matters of grave concern in situations in which there is profound pressure. And that's true of all of our lives. When I was a young adult, I lived in this uh, house in Berkeley that was not very well taken care of. And there was one of the bedrooms that had a leak in the ceiling, but it only leaked when there was rain to a certain degree. And you could see a little crack, but it just looked like a little crack. It was. It was just a little crack. And so we would complain to the landlord, and he would say, it's just a small crack, you know? And he would send guys out, and he would get the plaster out, and he would just smooth it over, you know? It's like, that's going to go well, <laughs> you know? And it rained harder some days, and the leaks would get worse, but he would come, and he would put a bucket under there, and then he would just smooth it over. Because it was just a little crack. It wasn't like the whole ceiling was falling through, until one day when a great rainstorm came, and there was incredible pressure on this roof, which was a flat roof. You know, it wasn't a roof that, like, the water was sliding down the thing. We seven guys, eight guys were sitting at the dinner table, and we heard this enormous crash in the bedroom, and the entire ceiling had fallen through from just a little crack, <laughs> under a lot of pressure. I bet your experience is like mine. I, I do some decent amount of relational counseling with people, sometimes household, family, marriage, but sometimes just friendship and everything. And I would just tell you that relationships in loving contexts, they fail little by little and then all at once. Very few people are like a monster and an ogre who showed up in the marriage or showed up in the house. Man, I mean, once in a while that happens. But most of the time, it's just a little character defect. There's someone who feels a little sensitive to feedback, won't take correction. And then it just grows and grows, and then under pressure, irreconcilable differences. I wonder, in your life, as you begin this Lenten journey, do you have an awareness about the manner in which darkness most often whispers to your heart and mind? 
to the extent you have an answer to that question, you can have a pretty meaningful journey of Lent. And to the extent that you're ignorant of how darkness makes its claim on you, well, you could do all the fasting in the world, and it just make you a religious person. So take a moment. Let's just pause for a moment. I'm not done with the message yet, but close your eyes for a moment. Our confidence that the Spirit of God is always here. Just ask in your heart, is there one main way in which darkness most often is speaking to you? One place of vulnerability in your heart, in your character, and in your mind. Maybe you're a little like Judas and that you love things just a little bit too much. Maybe you have a need for the validation of others, which sometimes leads you to people-pleasing or workaholism. Maybe you find yourself complaining about situations and other people on a semi-regular basis. And yes, there are people that are irritating in our lives. But maybe there's a sore spot in your heart that is angry and resentful that is always getting tapped into. Where are you most vulnerable to the whisperings of darkness? Where are you most like Judas? Let's open our eyes again. Before I move on, I'll simply say that the voices of darkness do speak and they are prone to speak at our place of greatest vulnerability, at our place of greatest vulnerability. To the extent that we are aware of what that vulnerability is, well, we're set up to experience grace and help in the presence of God. Judas is a picture of someone seized by darkness, completely engulfed in darkness, and his life ends in utter agony. And, of course, Mary is the contrast picture. Mary is the picture in this text of someone who is walking in light and through whose lifestyle light is shining. She is attentive to the journey of Jesus. She knows what the ministry of Jesus is all about, and she values it with everything that she has. And so Jesus says in verses 7-8, saying to Judas, who was complaining about her, Jesus says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for my day of burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. If you're new to the text, verse 8, this idea that you will always have the poor sounds a little insensitive of Jesus. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which is God's law to his people, including many words about how they are to tend to the poor of the land. So it's not at all an, ex an exclamation that Jesus is insensitive to the poor. It's simply to say, that you will not always have me, that I am going to the cross, 
that I'm engaging a battle on your behalf. And he's asking a question, do you see what I'm doing? Do you value what I'm doing? Mary is walking in this life. She sees what is beautiful about the life and sacrifice of Jesus. And I think we could say that the things that are beautiful in this world, the things that are truly beautiful, have endless facets to their beauty. I was camping this past week in Arizona, and when it wasn't storming on us, <laughs> I was just looking out at uh, landscapes or looking up at the stars and trying to take pictures. My instinct was like, I want to take a picture of that so I could remember it forever. And it's like, no picture really does justice to the beauty of what it is we're seeing. You just have to experience it again and again and again. And I think we could say that Mary is having that experience regarding Jesus' death. Judas is resistant to that journey of sacrifice, and Mary is attending to it with all that she has. It is beautiful to her, and inexpressibly so. It is worth everything to her. Some people think that that pint of nard would have been like her savings account. It is to say that what is accomplished in Jesus' suffering and death becomes for her the greatest treasure of her life. And that, according to the Gospel of John, is all of the light in the world. That is what it means to see clearly. So I want to invite us to enter into Lent in the spirit of Mary, walking in the light, walking alongside Jesus in his suffering, in his rejection, and in his death, and finding life and light in the midst of it. I think we could say two things about Mary's example that are honorable or praiseworthy. One is her lavish attention. She sees what the other disciples are unable or are unwilling to see. And I want to call us as a community to give lavish attention to the journey of Jesus in his suffering leading to his death. That could look like more intensive time of reflection, more intensive time of reading, more intensive time of considering what the light of the cross shows us about our own hearts. It's why we've created a devotional for you. Maybe you've never really had kind of a daily time to converse with the Spirit of God. The devotional is designed to help you do that. There are some of us in Silicon Valley that never really pray for more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time. And I have all kind of sympathy for that reality. The life feels like, you know, has us going 1,000 miles an hour, and if you're someone taking care of little people in your life, 10 or 15 minutes sounds luxurious. But I want to invite us into retreat space. Ehoma mentioned a retreat this next Saturday that goes from 9 until noon. You'll be hosted in that space. You will be led into an experience 
of prayer. And with the help of others, I think you will find that there is a conversation that God wants to have with you that will lead you into deeper intimacy and greater life. If you're not a follower of Jesus in this space, or if you were a follower of Jesus and you kind of lost that loving feeling somewhere along the way, (laughs) things just don't feel the same as they used to feel, maybe lavish attention to what's going on in your heart could mean simply asking a church friend whom you trust about how they got through a challenging time in their life. Just naming the question that you have. Lavish attention and then lavish devotion. You know, Mary's bodily worship is stunning to me. You know, at Silicon Valley, we so live in our heads. You know, we're observing things from afar. We're examining things and analyzing things. We're standing back, and sometimes even in worship, I find myself like with my legs crossed, my arms crossed, and I'm leaning back as if I'm watching worship happen. And there's no sin in watching worship happen, especially if you're not a worshiper. But the invitation is to enter in. Mary throws herself at the feet of Jesus. Friends, sometimes our bodies lead our souls into the presence of God. And for all of us who are formed in a Silicon Valley analytical, heady way of being in the world, I want to invite you to experiment with inhabiting the body that God gave you as an instrument of worship. And maybe that could mean kneeling down. Mary was down on her knees. Maybe it could mean experimenting with prayer and worship as lifting your hands or placing your hand on your heart. Lavish devotion. Not just the giving of fleeting thoughts to Jesus, but the giving of our whole being to Jesus, in whom we find light, in whom we find love, in whom we find abundance of life. You received a handout when you came in. It has a couple of questions just designed to help you make some plans for actually entering in to a season of Lent. You don't have to answer all of those questions, but they're just designed to help you think, what would I actually do? (laughs) What, What am I going to do, or do I want to do anything this Lent? The last question I would encourage you to do, it's an encouragement to just write a prayer inviting God to lead you into Lent, expressing your heart of desire and your heart of devotion. So in a moment, I'll send you into some time to write and reflect on that. There's some pens in the pocket of the chair in front of you, somewhere around. But before you enter into that, let me pray for us. I feel like um, in this space that there are some of us in the room that even as we've talked about here today, are increasingly aware that there is darkness around us, that there are dark voices that have access to our hearts and minds or the hearts and minds of people that we love. I feel like there are some of us here who have an increasing awareness to 
our heart's vulnerability. So sometimes we swing the door of our heart wide open and welcome the whisperings of darkness in. And so as we pray and write and then worship, we ask God of mercy and love, come descend upon us this morning and shine the light of your presence upon us to fill our hearts with hope, hope in your mercy and hope in your love. We want to give ourselves to you like Mary, even if we've never done it before and even if we don't know how, it's our longing to live in the light of your love. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Take a few moments, write, reflect, and then Lindsay and the team will come and lead us in worship.